This talk was given by Denya Chike Levister at the Zen Center of New York City. Chike is a senior lay student in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmm.org slash zcnyc. Thanks for listening. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Zen Center of New York City, uh, an affiliate of Zen Mountain Monastery, which is located in upstate New York. Thanks to each of you for joining us this morning to commemorate the life and the works of the Bodhisattva, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. Um, hi, y'all there virtually. Feeling your energy here through all those webs of interconnectivity. I offer a warm welcome, especially to those joining us for the first time uh, today. It's nice to see everyone here. I want to begin also by expressing my gratitude for being asked to offer a talk today. It's quite an honor um, uh, to have been given the opportunity to offer my words on this day to commemorate Dr. King's life. He has always been a, a particular inspiration to me. Um, I want to thank the PAD group, the People of African Descent group, for such loving support and solidarity on this Dharma path. Uh, there was no PAD group uh, until fairly recently. Um, and until it existed, I didn't actually realize how much I needed a PAD group to exist. I'm grateful also for all the other MRO Sangha members that made today's commemoration possible in the wonderful video that we just saw and all of the other tech work and uh, Sangha. So uh, I also want to thank my sister and brother for their inspiration. So thanks, everyone. My name is Chike. I use she or they. I'm a lay student in the Mountains and Rivers Order of the Zen Mountain Monastery. I'm a member of PAD uh, in our practice group for practitioners who identify as people of African descent. Today, I'd like to focus on the teachings of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and commemorate his life as a bodhisattva. In Mahayana Buddhism, a bodhisattva refers to someone who has generated bodhicitta, uh, which is the spontaneous wish to develop a compassionate mind, and to embody compassionate action for the benefit of all sentient beings. Mahayana bodhisattvas are spiritually heroic people. They work to attain awakening and are driven by great compassion and are exemplified by important spiritual qualities such as the four divine abodes, also known as the Brahma-viharas of loving-kindness, compassion, empathetic joy, and equanimity. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated by James Earl Ray 54 years ago in the Lorraine Motel in Memphis, Tennessee on April 4th, 1968. Ray was from Tennessee, the first of nine children. He had an Irish, Scottish, and Welsh, Welsh ancestry and was raised Catholic. 
He left school at the age of 12 and later joined the United States Army. At the close of World War II, he served in Germany, but he struggled with the military um, and was eventually discharged from the service for ineptitude. Ray was a racist, drawn to the segregationist presidential campaign of George Wallace. He was convicted in 1969 after entering a guilty plea, thus foregoing a jury trial and any possibility of a death sentence. He was sentenced to 99 years in prison. He died during his incarceration in 1998 at the age of 70. For those of us who travel the Dharma path to benefit the boundless multitude of living beings past, present, and future, the Reverend Dr. King feels very much alive, I think. And because of his legacy as a pacifist and the gaps in our educational histories in this country, I think that many may not know our history or the facts or even realize that his journey toward truth and peace was hard and hard won. So many of us don't know our histories. Shedding a little light on some of this history is part of why I wanted today to center his words from the letters, his letter from a Birmingham jail, because they align with the teachings of the Dharma too, but also because his words resonate in me in a particular way that has been important in my life. I appreciate the ability to surface multiple voices today in the celebration of Dr. King's work because multiple voices are critical. It will take all of us to heal, to move toward equity and the co-creation of well-being for humanity. We are interconnected, and I think our collective hope is that we will remain inspired to act in our lives based on love and interconnection in order to nurture our shared humanity in the service of what is right. You've heard some of the words from the now famous letter from the Birmingham jail, and if you're interested I encourage you to read all of it. It's quite long. These were just short excerpts. Uh, the letter was written on April 16, 1963, in response to eight pastors who had written a letter to Dr. King. Um, and in this letter, these pastors declared that while there was racial segregation to be addressed, King's actions in protesting and in demonstrating were wrong. They said, because that work was for courts and the law, not work for ordinary people. You see, Dr. King was arrested for demonstrating and protesting against segregation. He was put in the jail in Birmingham, Alabama. So in his letter from a Birmingham jail, Dr. King was writing to his brothers in the church, fellow pastors with congregations, trying to convince them that his faith, the faith they shared, dictated action on behalf of humanity. Dr. King did not agree that it should be left to the courts and the law. 
Now, some of you know me and some of you don't. So let me share that as an attorney and a social justice attorney and one who teaches law and runs a program that promotes access to law school for those historically excluded from the legal profession. This particular letter, the assertion that Dr. King's actions were wrong, his actions in demonstrating against segregation were wrong, that he should not protest, he should not show up with his feet, but rather leave it to the courts and law. Well, <laughs> as a member of the New York City chapter of the National Lawyers Guild, I do protests, okay? I've worked as a legal observer, so this resonates with me as absolutely absurd. And I am also a woman whose father was a black man who grew up in the segregated South. So yeah, not so much on leaving it to the law alone. Attack the forces of evil, not persons doing evil. Dr. King said that the civil rights movement and issues of segregation was not an issue between white people and black people, but an issue between justice and injustice. He said, attack forces of evil, not persons doing evil. When we attack personalities, it makes reconciliation more difficult since attacking people often escalates conflict. Thich Nhat Hanh and the Reverend Dr. King were friends. I don't know if everyone knows that. In his remembrances, Thich Nhat Hanh shared that he met the Reverend Dr. King in person for the first time in Chicago. And he says, quote, from the first moment I knew I was in the presence of a holy person. Not just his good work, but his very being was the source of great inspiration for me. When those who represent a spiritual tradition embody the essence of their tradition, just the way they walk, sit and smile, speaks volumes about that tradition. Martin Luther King Jr. was young at that time, as was I. We both belonged to the Fellowship of Reconciliation, an organization working to help groups in conflict find peaceful resolution. So even as young men, Dr. King and Thich Nhat Hanh understood what the path forward needed to be attack forces of evil, not persons doing evil. They combined efforts to work for peace in Vietnam and to fight for civil rights in the United States. We agreed, he said, that the true enemy of man is not man. Our enemy is not outside us. Our true enemy is the anger and hatred and the discrimination that is found in the hearts and minds of people. We have to identify the real enemy and seek nonviolent ways to remove it. Attack forces of evil, not persons doing evil. They were able to continue their discussions on peace, freedom, and community, and worked to unpack what kind of steps America could take to end the war. And they agreed that without a community, we could not go very far. Thich Nhat Hanh said to him, 
Martin, do you know something? In Vietnam, they call you a bodhisattva, an enlightened being trying to awaken other living beings and to help them move toward more compassion and understanding. Shortly after that, just a few months later, he was assassinated in Memphis. Uh, and this was excerpted from um, At Home in the World, Stories from Amongst Life by Thich Nhat Hanh, which was written in 2016. Dr. King himself said, we are tied together in the single garment of destiny, caught in an inescapable network of mutuality. He was asking us to acknowledge that this destiny, this inescapable network of mutuality, was, in fact, the very basis for our existence as a country. He was begging the nation to transform itself and begin anew. And he understood that the foundation of this work was in the creation of a beloved community. Attack forces of evil, not persons doing evil. He maybe was ahead of his time because white folks were not ready to do the work of confronting white privilege then. Maybe Dr. King's life and work is still ahead of times today. Only time will tell whether enough people are willing to examine the ways they've benefited from privilege in ways that have and continue to cause harm to black people. I'm heartened by the work that has been happening in our Sangha. Our affinity groups are active. As a member of PAD, I don't go to all of these, but my friends have reported to me that they find the work of the What is Whiteness groups helpful, healing. They say they are learning. Learning is good. Learning is moving in the right direction. Dr. King knew then that white people had to be willing to do the work attack forces of evil, not persons doing evil. I don't really know this because as a person of color with an ambiguous look about her, I have been asked more times than I can any longer care to count, what are you? But I can imagine that it might not be easy for white folks to face the truth of white skin privilege, either then or now. Privileges that come much more often with inherited wealth, better access to education, interactions without the assumptions of criminality, less need to prove oneself, more prestige. And from where I sit, it seems too that some of white culture today seems sincerely to quite honestly embrace the work of black artists, manners of speech, style, of dress, music, many other things. So maybe owning skin privilege, just possessing it, when there isn't something an individual feels they did wrong or there doesn't seem to be something a person feels is their fault and all of it simply being an artifact of birth, maybe, maybe that's hard accepting that it comes with unearned privilege. I imagine some white folks must feel that they didn't choose to be born in that body. It's not my fault. 
Do you identify with that? I care. Let me do the work, learn about my bias. Okay, great. I've learned something. I want to put it into action. Can I be done now? Does everything always have to be about race? It's exhausting. I can't think about this all the time, right? Goodness, that would be crazy. How would I live my life? I have responsibilities, priorities. Attack forces of evil, not persons doing evil. Well, you see, though, we did not choose what Daito Roshi used to call our bag of skin either. And there are implications that go along with inhabiting a non-white bag of skin, sometimes life-threatening implications. And Lord help you, if you're non-white and queer or have a non-cisgendered identity of any kind, we don't get to rest, ever. Not for one single second. We cannot be done because people are still holding on to white skin privilege very tightly. They do it by sowing fear, disconnection, disenfranchisement, denial, by stereotyping, making ridiculous assumptions about our intelligences and our abilities, stereotypes in service of perpetuating the lie of inferiority, and by freely pointing this out to us at any possible opportunity. Dr. King knew this. And white folks listening to what I'm saying right now, as people of color, we did not choose to be born in our bodies either, and yet, we were also born how we were born. And systems of oppression and pain and exclusion in America are an awful birthright. Oppression and the made-up stigma of unworthiness and of inferiority was the milk we were fed at the breast and the baby food some of our parents and caretakers fed us too as well as the didactic knowledge many of our teachers taught us. People of color need to do, we need to do our own work, and white people need to do their work too. And I respect that everyone moves at their own pace, in their own time. And everyone has a part of themselves that is compassionate, loving, and beautiful. Attack forces of evil, not persons doing evil. The work and words of Dr. King are focused on a view of humanity that makes no distinction in caste, ranking, intelligence, ability, potentials based on race. We all know that in many cultures. Do we know this? Um, many cultures inhabited by brown people say colorism is not so much a thing. Uh, peoples in these families look like every hue. Every shade, a brown, from dark to indistinguishable, from white. People are judged by what they say, how they treat one another, what they have to offer. In short, in the words of Dr. King, by the content of their character. 
attack forces of evil, not persons doing evil. Is this something we can see happening in America? What would it take for us to get to a place in our relationships between and among all of us to be open and interested in learning who another human being is without some sort of prejudgment based on appearance, the assumptions about appearances. The Dharma has much to offer us in this regard. The Faith Mind poem says, if you wish to see the truth, then hold no opinions for or against anything. To set up what you like against what you dislike is the disease of the mind. When the deep meaning of things is not understood, the mind's essential peace is disturbed to no avail. The seventh grade precept says that we vow to realize self and other as one. Do not elevate the self and blame others. This precept points us to treating everyone as equals, a very challenging precept to put into practice. Equality is a key reality from a Zen Buddhist Equality is a key reality from a Zen Buddhist point of view. My first teacher, John Dido Lori, in the Heart of Being, Moral and Ethical Teachings on Zen Buddhism, wrote, when you realize in your life that cause and effect are one, you realize that what you do and what happens to you are the same thing. To see clearly is to realize that each one of us is responsible not only for ourselves and our lives, but also for the whole phenomenal universe. Dido says, the minute you say, this bag of skin is me, everything inside it is me, and everything outside of it is the rest of the universe, you've excluded the whole universe from yourself. When really, what you do to the universe, you do to yourself. What you do to others, you do to yourself. There is no way to avoid taking responsibility for your life. When we see our true nature as one, then how can we not see others as ourselves and treat them as ourselves? The need to elevate ourselves is a need of the ego. By blaming others, elevating ourselves, Insecure people feel they're placing themselves on better footing, when in fact, that footing is an illusion. Equality demands us to trust that each person can become able to listen and process what we communicate and what is communicated to us. It demands that we do not hold others accountable for our own feelings, that we trust ourselves to deal with them, Attack the forces of evil, not persons doing evil, even when that's ourselves. Dr. King taught, attack forces of evil, not persons doing evil. And Thich Nhat Hanh wrote, 
Often, when we say, I love you, we focus mostly on the idea of the I who's doing the loving, and less on the quality of the love that's being offered. We can replace shame and blame with Dr. King's teaching, attack forces of evil, not persons doing evil, by actively unsubscribing from repressive social norms and unlearning the outdated cultural patterns that we don't want to repeat or pass down to our children so that the quality of our love reflects our true intentions and values. That really landed in me that Thich Nhat Hanh's I love you, when we say I love you, we focus mostly on the idea of the I who's doing the loving and less on the quality of the love that's being offered. The seventh grade precept is in our culture in a pervasive way. Aiken Roshi in The Mind of Clover said, arrogance condemns the arrogant one. And, and he says, this condemnatory arrogance, look at us in the United States. We have made great mistakes. We doubt our own worth and feel vulnerable. So we lash out to prevent others from attacking us first. You ever see that? Attack forces of evil, not persons doing evil. So where is this blame in you? Do you do that? It's not my fault. It's your fault. Is that what it's about? Does this help us? We can be hard on ourselves, and we can be defensive. I'm not a big blamer myself, but I can get pretty defensive at times. I am a work in progress. I am improving. I have practice. The precepts have changed my life. Deep bows to my teachers and to our sangha for providing spaces where we can wonder and laugh and confess our confusions and fears and reveal our faulty conditioning. We say in the Mountains and Rivers Order um, that one aspect of the sangha treasure uh, is mutual polishing, like rough stones put in a tumbler, knocking against one another, banging, scraping, can make a lot of noise. There are scrapes, and, but we're all being polished together in this practice, making smoother edges, softer edges, making us a little easier to handle, easier to touch, easier to hold. It's all an opportunity to realize self and other as one, again and again. And again, this is our interdependent nature revealing itself. Can we see that without the failures, without the failure to realize, without the mistakes, how can there be any recognition of the true nature of reality? We all make errors, errors of judgment, errors of conditioning, of incorrect assumptions. This is human. We're rough, we're grumpy, we're stressed, we're tired. Life is challenging. It's not our errors or our mistakes, it's what we do about them 
when we recognize them. I practice my life in this particular way because it helps me balance. It helps me stay committed to truth, to my authenticity. It helps me remember in my relative existence that there are two sides. There's an absolute two working together. This helps me hold a positive vision. I don't know things. I don't know stuff. I don't know a lot of stuff. That's so great not to know, isn't it? No ground of being. Yeah. It's all possible. Practice helps me to remember how to breathe and to remember how natural thing, how natural a thing breathing is. I forget sometimes. I hold my breath sometimes and I don't realize I'm doing it. And practice helps me not to become disabled by my fears and by my depression and by my anxiety and by an illusion of helplessness so I can be alert to what life is calling me to do. Thus, right here, right now. Is there another moment? So much of the conflict of racism and other isms is about the deeply held delusion that we are separate beings. All of this is responsible for tragic and horrific consequences of the unequal ground we witness every day on our planet. Dr. King knew this. Attack forces of evil not persons doing evil. The four forces of evil Dr. King saw before he was murdered were poverty, militarism, racism, and materialism. He saw that in America, we seemed to have centered corporations at the expense of humanity, sentient beings, people, folks, us. Right in the context of his lived experience, during the civil rights movement, he saw prophetically that we were in danger of elevating avarice and greed in the American mind. The creation of the beloved community was, for Dr. King, a heartfelt way to attend to those who did not feel at home in the United States and to prevent the continued killing of human life on this planet. He focused especially on trying to prevent the killing of black people. His call was an alarm going off. He was never a man dreaming in his sleep. He was awake. And he felt we could not go on as a society without conscious love. Central to the many ways Buddhism is understood is the achievement of emotional mental and psychological wellness. African Americans are at perpetual risk of psychological imbalance and trauma due to the social realities of racism in the United States. That's a quote from Ayo Yatundi in her book, Black and Buddhist, what Buddhism can teach us about race, resilience, transformation, and freedom. So I wanna offer a reading here um, it is about Sensei Alex 
Kakuyo's lived experiences. He, he wrote this on February 9, 2019, and it's called Buddhism and the Racist Buddha. These are his words. People look at me strangely when I say racism doesn't bother me. They seem confused when I, a black man, shrug and continue about my business while they rant about the latest person caught wearing blackface, shouting the N-word, or accosting people of color for the simple crime of existing. I know the response they're expecting. They want me to throw things, to yell, and maybe even cry a little. They want me to act out in ways that will give them some catharsis, that will reinforce their goodness in being outraged on my behalf. But I don't do that. I don't do that because of a quote from James Baldwin, which states, to be a Negro in this country and to be relatively conscious is to be in a rage almost all the time. Baldwin was a fiction writer and social critic who rose to prominence during the civil rights movements of the 60s and 70s. And his book of essays, The Fire Next Time, was one of my favorite reads in college. And the Documentary, I Am Not Your Negro, by Raoul Peck, gives terrific insight into the mind of this great American writer. I agree with Baldwin's assessment. To be the least bit conscious of racism in America is to fall victim to a deep, unending rage. But we can't stop there. We can't let the conversation end with outrage. Rather, we have to ask ourselves two questions. First, where does this rage come from? Second, what are we going to do about it? In my experience, the rage that Baldwin speaks of is birthed from a feeling of despair that manifests when the people and institutions we love don't love us back. I've felt this despair many times in my life. I felt it when a girl I used to date told me I couldn't come to her birthday party because her old-fashioned grandma was going to be there and she didn't like black people. I felt it again when a woke activist who I considered a friend started making jokes like, open your eyes, Alex, it's dark and we can't see you. American history is littered with reasons for despair going all the way back to our country's founding. And if one isn't careful, that despair grows into the constant self-encompassing rage that James Baldwin talked about. However, Buddhism is clear that anger, even when it's justified, is a poison. It tears us apart from the inside and does little to solve the problem at hand. In fact, the fifth century Buddhist scholar, Buddha Gosa, spoke of anger by saying, by doing this, you are like a man who wants to hit another and picks up a burning ember or excrement in his hand, and so first burns himself or makes himself stink. Frankly, I don't think covering myself in metaphorical excrement is a healthy response to racism. So while the despair, pain, and inevitable anger that comes from acts like, you fill in the blank, you can imagine them, many details are not necessary here. Instead, I choose these incidents as a reminder that even though I love America for the food, the clothing, and the shelter that it has provided me over the years, there are certain things about this country that just, they just can't give me. 
If I wanted to be validated as a human being, one who isn't used as a Halloween costume, I'll have to look elsewhere for that. So that answers the question, where does rage come from? But still, we need to make a decision about what to do about it. For me, Buddhism has been a saving grace in this regard. It's been my practice that has nourished me, sustained me, and protected my mental health in the face of one racist incident after another. It's done this by showing me that the true cause of racism is the illusion of a separate self, which is birthed from ignorance. So as long as ignorance exists in the world, racism will also exist. Oddly, I find comfort in this teaching, he says. It helps me to not take things so personally. Instead, I grimly accept the existence of racism in the same way I accept icy roads in winter or sore back during meditation. I don't like it, but I have to learn to live with it. I'm so glad I stumbled upon Sensei Kakuyo's words. Me too, I agree with him. I, re I refuse to live in my rage. Anger's helpful. It's pointing to something we need to pay attention to. This is not about not feeling anger when it's justified. But for me, it's about not living in my rage. The focus for me is to attack forces of evil, not persons doing evil. I sleep better this way. And I find I continue to have the energy to make good trouble, fight the good fight. I'm on a personal mission to interrupt my own intergenerational trauma. I want it to end with me. We need to expand the circle of human concern and embrace the beautiful mosaic that is Sangha, big Sangha, the world Sangha, well beyond the mountains and rivers order. This morning, the people of African descent group hoped to open a window a little bit to our history. I've tried to share a little bit of mine. Dr. King was so brave, he acted consistent with his values and beliefs. He was a person of integrity, and he acted in the face of fear. Not just fear, but the fear of death, his own death, his family. I want to sum up with a few quotes, a few of my favorite quotes from Dr. King. You've heard some of them. Um, we must come to see that justice too long delayed is justice denied. There comes a time when the cup of endurance runs over and people are no longer willing to be plunged into the abyss of despair. The time is always ripe to do right. We who engage in nonviolent direct action are not the creators of tension. We are not the creators of tension. We merely bring to the surface the hidden tension that's already there. Silence and non-action is complicity. We are now faced with the fact that tomorrow is today. We are confronted with the fierce urgency of now. In this unfolding conundrum of life and history, there is 
such a thing as being too late. This is no time for apathy or complacency. This is a time for vigorous and positive action. These are Dr. King's words. So will we walk the way of the Bodhisattva as members of a beloved community? Uh, beloved community is one where conflicts are met with accountability and compassion. A community where solidarity and mutual aid are at the heart of giving and receiving care. A community where we support each other and collectively work for liberation together. Bodhidharma said, self-nature is subtle and mysterious in the realm of the equitable dharma. Not dwelling upon I against you is called the precept of not praising yourself while abusing others. Can we inhabit the precept? Realize the self and other as one? Do not elevate the self and blame others? We are all in the process of becoming in every moment. We have choices about the next right action. What will you choose? What am I doing with my time? Trying my damnedest to attack the forces of evil and not focus too closely on the persons doing evil. Thank you, Dr. King, for how you embodied your mission for the compassion that eked out of every poor, for your contagious love of humanity, for your spirit, for that melodious and powerful voice, for your commitment to justice and fairness and peace, and perhaps especially for providing a true living role model of humanity and for demonstrating what love in action looks like to one little brown girl who grew up in the projects. Thank you for listening. To find out more about the Zen Center of New York City's programs, retreats and residency, please visit our website at zmm.org slash zcnyc.